Hi, and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. I'm very pleased to present in this episode an interview with Meredith Miller to discuss her recently published article in the Indiana Law Review entitled Challenging Gender Discrimination in Closely Held Firms, the Hope and Hazard of Corporate Oppression Doctrine. Meredith is a tenured law professor at the Turo Law Center and also maintains a law practice at Miller Law at PLLC in New York City, where she concentrates in business and employment law, appeals, and consulting. Her article is a thought-provoking analysis of the barriers hindering the use of statutory sex discrimination laws to combat discrimination against female co-owners of closely held firms due to their status as non-employees and examines minority shareholder oppression doctrine as a potentially viable tool to remedy such discrimination. One of the topics in our article, in our conversation, and also the topic of a blog post I wrote in 2019 called Minority Shareholder Oppression in the Me Too Era, is the groundbreaking Straka case, in which a New York judge upheld an oppression claim in a judicial dissolution case brought by a female accountant who was a 25% shareholder in her firm and eventually left the firm after being subjected to demeaning behavior by her male colleagues that was being tolerated by her male co-owners. Her article discusses both the potential advantages and the shortcomings of oppression doctrine as an effective tool both in individual cases and in the terms of the broader goals of advancing workplace equality. Without further ado, I give you Professor Miller. Meredith, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Peter. Well, it's great to have you on. It's uh, great for you to take some time out of your, I'm sure, very, very busy schedule to talk with me. I saw your article, although I think it was published last year in the Iowa uh, Law Review, I just saw it fairly recently, shame on me, Uh, you published an article called Challenging Gender Discrimination in Closely Held Firms, the Hope and Hazards of Corporate Oppression Doctrine. And that immediately grabbed my attention, uh, mainly because some years ago I wrote about the Straka case, which we'll be talking about as the first, and I think so far, the only case I know of, at least here in New York, that explicitly dealt with sex discrimination as part of a fact pattern that was brought to court in a shareholder minority, you know, oppressed minority shareholder case. So it is of great interest to me, and I think you're on to a very hot topic these days in light of many factors. And I should also mention that at the same time that I saw your article, Meredith, I also came across Professor Ann Lipton's article called Capital Discrimination, which took, uh, which takes, I think, a very different slant on, on the issue, although not, although there's a lot of similarity and overlap, I think, between what you write and what she writes. But I want to talk about your article, and I hope you want to talk about your article. What is it that you know, drew your attention to that particular topic? Let me just say it's the Indiana Law Review. Oh, um, oh, well, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, that's okay. In case anyone wants to uh, read it, it's in volume 54 of the Indiana Law Review. Uh, and your your blog post on the Straka case um, was part of the inspiration, uh, quite frankly, uh, for the piece. Because as you mentioned, it's the only case in New York and beyond that we see really a claim of gender discrimination prosecuted or pursued in the form of oppression doctrine. So that was part of the inspiration for writing this article. 
But for me, it's part of a bigger project, uh, maybe what academics call research agenda, which is this, this project of identifying where employment law and business law just aren't speaking with each other, or they're on parallel or, or, or discord tracks. Uh, and then a conversation could either better the understanding of the law or could foster changes in the law uh, that are really uh, warranted or, or necessary. Your, your article starts off talking about what you call the employment law gap. What do you mean by that? Sure. I mean, one of the problems with employment law, and very specifically with someone who wants to pursue an employment discrimination claim, is in the first instance, they need to be an employee. And who is an employee is not always obvious and is determined by a multi-factor test that was announced by the Supreme Court in 2003 in a case called the Clackamas case. This is a gap because one of the groups of individuals that often uh, does not fit, or at least does not fit neatly or obviously enough for summary judgment, to win on summary judgment, into the definition of employee under that multi-factor test are owners. The, the folks that I call in the article partners, and I use that term in really the colloquial sense uh, because I'm describing any uh, form of a closely held entity, whether it's a partnership or an LLC or a closely held corporation or otherwise, as an owner, it's a pretty uphill battle to argue that you're an employee uh, of the entity that you have uh, an investment in. Which means then, right, that if you feel you've been untreated or treated unfairly based on, and my article focuses on gender, uh, then you don't have the available law of at least the federal law of Title VII, and most of the states follow the definition used by the Supreme Court. So any body of really federal or statutory anti-discrimination protections is, is just not available. And, and another way to describe the gap is just to say, you know, I think the conventional wisdom for an employment lawyer is if I have, you know, a woman walk in my office and tell me, you know, I'm one of the owners in this law firm or accounting firm, and you know, I don't think they're sharing profits with me fairly because I'm a woman. Uh, an employment attorney is going to say, oh, well, I can't use Title VII or any of the state cognates because you're not an employee. Or even if I think maybe we have an argument under this six-factor test to say you're an employee, uh, it's a risk. And you know, most employment discrimination cases are brought by attorneys on contingency, right? So the, really the conventional wisdom is, I'm sorry, I... I can't help you. So, uh, and that's the gap. Yeah. So, so it sounds like in in these cases, even if someone does take on the case, a lawyer takes on the case, the case will get bogged down at least initially in a threshold question of whether this person who nominally is a partner is or is not considered an employee for Title VII purposes. Absolutely. And that's and right. and just you know the 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 risk of getting bogged down in that. Uh, threshold issue is enough to deter, you know, competent, even competent, highly competent attorneys from taking the case on in the first place, it sounds like. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it's an issue that could dissuade a competent attorney because of their competence, right? And say, well, the risk is, is too great here that we don't win on this threshold mm -hmm. issue, or really it, it becomes an existential issue throughout the life of, of the case. Mm -hmm. You know, when we have a multi-factor test, you know, summary 
summary judgment is, is going to be difficult on either side. So that brings us to what I think is the central premise of your article, which is that shareholder, I'll call it shareholder oppression doctrine, although it's not literally confined to shareholder corporations, that that oppression doctrine, which exists under state law, can fill in that employment law gap. Is that is that a fair assessment? I think that's right. I mean, I think the bulk of the article is descriptive on that and really written you know, to say, hey, employment lawyer, when this client, a potential client comes in your office and you're thinking, how am I ever going to uh, pass this, you know, multi-factor test on this threshold question of employment? Well, maybe there's this other avenue to obtain relief through through oppression doctrine. And, and when we talk about oppression doctrine, and your article does spend some time um, just sort of laying out the basics of oppression Doctrine. So for anyone listening to this who would like to have a better understanding of, you know, that doctrine and its various manifestations in different states, I would highly recommend that you, you know, read uh, Meredith's article on that point, as well as, of course, the rest of it. Uh, so but I don't I don't know that we need to go into the basics of oppression doctrine, perhaps other than Meredith to mention that, you know, in various states that doctrine can take a statutory form in other states, it can take a, a common law form, sort of more along the lines of, you know, fiduciary duty uh, principles. There are variations from state to state, whether oppression doctrine is, you know, statutorily embodied for LLCs versus corporations and all. So there, there's lots of variation across the country in terms of you know, the shape and form of oppression doctrine. So, but I, I think for purposes of our discussion, we can try and <laughs> try and overlook all those variations and just sort of stick to this, the, you know, the central theme of your article. I think a good, you know, launching point here is to talk a little bit about the Straka case, which, you know, you, we've already mentioned. And as I said before, I think so far, that's the only case I know of in which you know gender discrimination was an explicit part of the minority shareholders' lawsuit in that dissolution case. Can you tell us a little bit about what that case, what happened in that case? What was the result? Uh, Diana Straka was uh, an investor or an owner in an accounting firm. It was a group of four accountants. She was a main partner who set up a corporation, a professional corporation in New York, to provide accounting services. So there are four of them. They were each equal 25% owners of the firm. And as the firm progressed, Straka really had two strains of alleged discrimination. On the one hand, there was this strain of harassment that she alleged that there were really inappropriate gendered comments directed towards her things like, oh, you're the one who makes coffee, or hey, baby, you want to sit on my lap? But then there was this other strain of uh, alleged discrimination, which was really, at least in the employment context, we think of you know an adverse employment action or disparate treatment where Straka said, I wasn't included in important management decisions, including the other three owners brought in a fifth investor, which served to dilute all of them to 20%. And she said, I wasn't involved in that decision making. Uh, also, and this is a common one you hear in these types of you know professional businesses, that she said she wasn't taking a fair share of the profits in relation to her efforts and her uh, work for the firm. And she really 
brought these claims saying that they were uh, because she was the only uh, woman in, in the firm, or at least these actions were motivated by gender. As you say, the first example you know I've seen of this in a, in a case where you know it's not brought as an employment discrimination claim. It probably couldn't be for the reasons we mentioned in this this gap in that doctrine, but instead under New York BCL 1104-A, which uh, in New York we have a statutory mechanism uh, to petition for dissolution of the firm based on uh, minority oppression, uh, she brought that that petition. Um, And she could do that because even after her dilution, she had that threshold in New York, you need to hold at least 20% uh, ownership to to make that petition. Uh, And it was a very, seems to have been a very effective way uh, at raising uh, her concerns about her treatment uh, at at the firm and, you know, the, the way she had been uh, excluded uh, from management decisions and, and really treated by uh, some of the others who actually think the, the worst offender was not another partner but an employee of the firm, uh, that the other partners were really doing nothing about his, his behavior. There's there's a a line in the court's decision. Uh, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously. The the uh, the court upheld the claim of oppression. We can agree on that. And yes. as a remedy, the court ordered a buyout of Ms. Straka's twenty five percent interest. But you know, in getting to that result, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read the the most important quote, at least important to our discussion, from the decision. The, the judge wrote, this court finds that the respondent majority shareholders and indeed any shareholder of any corporation should know that a female shareholder reasonably expects to be treated with equal dignity and respect as male shareholders forming the majority. Straka has demonstrated that she was not. The shareholders' slow and inadequate response to the senior accountant's demeaning behavior marginalized Straka, as did the lack of respect provided to her as the head of IT at the corporation. End of quote. I mean, a remarkable, remarkable finding by a court in in the context of minority shareholder oppression cases. And a bold one. And I think also, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, a brave move on the part of Ms. Straka, because particularly in her chosen profession, leaving a firm on those terms, bringing a lawsuit, accusing her partners or former partners of gender discrimination. I don't know what uh, Ms. Straka ended up doing afterward, but I can imagine the concern she would have if she wanted to join other, perhaps larger accounting firms with, with a lawsuit you know, behind her with allegations of that sort. Any, any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I think what, what I find fascinating about, in particular, that portion of, of the decision you mentioned, is that you know, the business law principles are gender neutral. Um, had Straka been you know, the fourth and then ultimately fifth male uh, accountant that was a partner in this firm, if, if she's now a man but she's being excluded from such important meetings, we'd all agree that as a founding member of this firm, she had an, an, an equal owner, a reasonable expectation of participating uh, in those management decisions. So to hear then the court take a step further and get out of neutrality to say there's also a reasonable expectation uh, not to be discriminated against, I think, 
is an important leap. And I think it's something that's powerful about this decision because it's not the way the claim needs to be framed, right? Which is why in my article, I sort of say this is both, there's hopes and hazards here, right? I mean, this, I think a case like the Straka case provides hope for the owners that are, you know, seeing this hurdle because there's a gap in the employment law and they might not be considered employees. And I think that even, you know, there's more hope in that because frankly, in the discrimination context, it's a pretty high bar because you have to show that the decisions were made based on gender. There's a problem of showing the intent uh, of, of the other parties and how they behaved. And while when you then look at the oppression doctrine in the business context, you know, that becomes irrelevant, whether they treated her this way because she was a woman or for some other reason. Um, you know, she lived farther from the office. I don't know. They could come up with whatever reason yeah. they wanted to say it wasn't discrimination, but it wouldn't matter because for the oppression doctrine, and this is whether it's under the statute or uh, the common law, you know, even though states frame it differently, at the end of the day, they all sort of coalesce around this notion of reasonable expectations, right? What was the reasonable expectation here of Ms. Straka investing in this firm? And whether she frames her claim in terms of gender or just in terms of business expectation, uh, she has a viable uh, avenue to, to seek redress under the corporate doctrine. And so that's where I think this is a really interesting and powerful decision and where I describe this maybe as a hazard as much as it, it provides hope for someone like Ms. Straka uh, to, to get a remedy. You know, I think the hazard is because the business law principles are neutral and because I think Straka could have probably won this case without pointing to the gender discrimination. What that does then is doesn't address the problem of gender discrimination, right? We could see oppression doctrine as a way to fill in a doctrinal gap in employment law, but it's not going to address the bigger policy questions of why we have those anti-discrimination laws uh, to, mm -hmm. to begin with. You know, you mentioned um, reasonable expectations, which, as you know better than most, is the focus of the test that is applied, at least in New York and many other states, for determining whether oppressive activity has occurred. In theory, that would mean that, I'm just making up a hypothetical here, if Ms. Straka had, was coming into an existing firm as a potential new you know, owner and met with, the, uh, you know, met with the other owners and there was no hiding that this was a sort of men's locker room culture and she nonetheless decided to join the firm knowing of this, you know, locker room culture, that would, would that defeat a later claim of gender discrimination, do you think, you know, based on that type of locker room behavior? Sure, right. Would it defeat the, would, would her expectations of being treated fairly no longer be reasonable expectations? Yeah, Right. that's the question. Uh, would that matter on how much she was able to investigate about the culture of the place, which... Uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, you would agree that you really never know something like that until you're on the inside uh, of, of a place to see how people are operating and what the culture is. But say it had a reputation. Is it reasonable for her expect, to expect uh, to be treated fairly uh, as a woman? Uh, well, I don't know. But, you know, for the business 
the, the, the corporate doctrine, really the question isn't, does she have a reasonable expectation of fair treatment as a woman? It's as an investor, right? And that's where I say the principles are really gender neutral. And so, you know, what I think of the Strapa case to me is a lot like, if you take out the gender equation, the Wilkes case, right? Which is the textbook case. Anybody who teaches uh, business law uh, teaches the Wilkes case from Massachusetts in the 1970s. Uh, decision from the Massachusetts Supreme Court, where I say it looks like Straka because there you have four equal investors in a property, uh, a corporation that owns a property that they run as a nursing home, and three of them essentially gang up on Wilkes and make him the odd man out. Uh, and at the end of the day, he's terminated from his employment. He's not included uh, in management decisions, and nobody's willing to buy him out for a price that they would be willing to accept themselves, right? Which is the freeze-out problem, right? That's the, the problem here. I mean, the reason we should step back and say we even have any of this doctrine in corporate law is because it's specific to the closely held corporation and it's specific in, dra- in addressing the problem, which is exit, right? In the closely held corporation, there's no ready exit. So this oppression doctrine is, is, is recognizing how unfair it could be uh, to an investor like Wilkes, for example, who at the end of the day, even though... The court says he reasonably expected continued employment to be part of what his investment was in this corporation has nothing but a share certificate. You know, it's not a corporation giving dividends. I mean, there the return was their salaries through their employment. And he has no say in management. And, you know, there the claim doesn't have to be the four, four male investors, right? It uh, doesn't have to be framed in, in gender-based terms. And so I think of Straka in, in this, this more recent New York case, as very much like Wilkes as, as, as the odd man out. And, you know, Wilkes didn't have to say anything. You know, he couldn't because it wasn't relevant there, but nor did he have to uh, frame any mm. of his uh, grievances in, in gender-based terms. So, so if we if we flip the facts in Straka to, and, and say, let's assume that, you know, she was getting the appropriate level of, you know, return on her investment or compensation according to, I think they had some sort of uh, profit matrix or something. And if she hadn't been frozen out from any significant uh, decision-making, and if she hadn't been assigned the, you know, the janitor's closet office or whatever it was, and if the only acts uh, and I'm not minimizing them here, but if she had been subjected to these comments, you know, sexist comments, you know, you know, you know, where, you know, where should I sit? Or, you know, can I sit on your lap? That kind of behavior. If that had been the only type of behavior that she was complaining of, and 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 feeling that you know it was not tenable for her to remain in, you know, sort of like a hostile work environment. It almost sounds like what I'm describing. Do you think that would? would cross the, the oppression threshold? Well, it gets back to your question about what would her reasonable expectation be, right? I think for the next you know, woman with one of these claims in New York, this Draca decision is a pretty good precedent to say, uh, you know, I had a reasonable expectation in, in investing in this firm that this type of harassment uh, would be something the firm would address. And in fact, there's something in this Draca case where, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, where, you know, they did get a consultant or do some training on sexual harassment because they recognized it as a risk, maybe not as to Straka, but other employees, female employees who are being similarly uh, mistreated mm-hmm. probably by the same offenders. But, you know, I think more broadly without 
this this precedent, I you know I think it's it's potentially a hard argument and sort of depends on arguments about what is a realistic perception of the business environment. Yeah. Right? I mean, is there a realistic perception uh, as a woman coming in that you uh, will be, you know, uh, able to perform without the distraction of that type of hostile work environment? It could be that our employment laws, even they, the, the ones we discussed, don't apply directly if um, she's not an employee, that they inform the context and inform uh, an argument that that's a reasonable expectation. But I can see uh, an argument on the other side that says, come on, everybody knows um, that there's the Me Too reason, movement for a reason, right? Or that there are these pushes uh, to make the work environment uh, less you know, discriminatory in these ways are for the very reason that they are still problematic mm-hmm. and then it wouldn't be reasonable to think you're going to walk into a business setting without those those problems. Yeah. yeah. The short answer is, I think it's it will be interesting to see how this case gets gets used. And as I was writing the article, there it really hadn't gotten that much citation or traction in other cases yet. I, I usually haven't gone back in, in quite a few months to see if if anything else has arisen recently. Yeah. The way the judge uh, wrote the decision and the quotation that I shared. It's really a. It's like an objective standard. It's not a. It's not a question of subjective expectations at all. I don't think. At least the way he wrote it. It's sort of like the same logic that I think that judges use in saying that even in the absence of any sort of written shareholders agreement or partnership agreement or LLC or operating agreement, a minority shareholder joining a, a venture and either investing their dollars or investing their sweat equity has a reasonable expectation of a voice in management and some sort of return on that investment, whether it's in the form of a biweekly salary or profit participation or some combination of the two. This seems to fit into that same you know, categorization as what I would call sort of objective, reasonable or reasonable person expectations that courts will apply. Any, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's right, and I think that this this case uh, gives gives fuel to that argument in, in whatever might be be the next case. You know, I don't know that objectively that's the expectation. Like I said, I think it's societally what we would say. You know, we expect the business environment to be equitable and fair and free of harassment. But then there are endless stories of how, in reality, it is not. I don't, although I wouldn't want to be the firm making that argument on the other side. I mean, in some ways, it's it's not the, the best of looks to say, well, I mean, not reasonable to expect that we wouldn't be, you know, a, a sexist and harassing environment just like so many other, I don't know, choose an accounting firm. Uh, isn't that the reputation of this this type of business? Uh, in your article, you, you you talk about the pitfalls of utilizing oppression doctrine to address you know gender discrimination. What are what are some of those pitfalls? There are pitfalls as a matter of just the corporate law doctrine, right? Which is, for example, the statute you mentioned in the Straka case is only going to be available uh, to uh, a shareholder or an owner that has twenty percent, or a group of shareholders or owners that own twenty uh, percent or more of the the company. Again, some of the pitfalls could be just what we've really centered a lot of this discussion around, which is uh, being able to show what a reasonable expectation was in investing. Uh, Not every expectation uh, that somebody has or supposedly has in investing is is a reasonable one. 
Actually, one other point I'd make on that, which is a practical point, is, you know, a lot, especially in the LLC context, has been addressed by operating agreements. So to the extent we're talking about oppression doctrine as a potential avenue, uh, we've seen courts that are enforcing operating agreements that eliminate that path for owners. So another potential pitfall, which is increasingly more common with the LLC and the use of the operating agreement, is we've seen courts that are willing to enforce operating agreements that waive members' rights to bring these oppression arguments, right? So it's almost like saying everything in the Straka case and everything I say in the article could be undone or taken away in the operating agreement and enforced by a court. So those are some of the more practical pitfalls. But I think the larger point, uh, and you know, in some ways, I think that where my article leaves off with this, Professor Lipton's are uh, article does as a great job really picking on up on some of the more normative suggestion for for what could be done as a matter of employment law a matter of business law you know a matter as a matter of family law to address these concerns but what I identify as a bigger picture pitfall is just this concern then in the places where oppression doctrine might fill in an employment law gap that the claims will not be framed as discrimination claims uh, based on, on gender. And with that, then, not really address the larger societal concerns that a statute like Title VII uh, is intending uh, to address. Really, oppression doctrine is a corporate doctrine to address the lack of exit in a closely held corporation. Uh, it is about fair treatment, but it isn't equipped to do the more heavy lifting of combating you know, gender-based discrimination in both the workplace and, and business more generally. That raises an interesting question. Usually when it gets to the point where a minority owner is willing to bring you know, litigation, at that point, the relationship that he or she has with the other owners has pretty much gone to pot. Their interest at that point you know, if they've been, as is typically the case, frozen out to whatever extent, either 100% or, you know, 75%, 50%, whatever, their interest usually at that point is is simply getting out and getting their investment back or getting their share of the value of the company back. Um, in that sense, it's a very focused, limited objective they have. They and the lawyer, perhaps, if they hire to represent them, may not I don't know. What's the word I'm searching for? Be motivated to address the larger societal issues that, that you're talking about. Will it advance their cause of getting bought out? I guess is the simplest way I can put it. Does that perhaps explain why we haven't seen any cases in the last three years since the Straka decision that are you know raising similar allegations? Because you know they're out there. They just have to be out there. Sure. Yeah, they, they're definitely out there. And if they're being brought in path that Straka brought her claim, whether statutory or, or, or common law, you don't have to frame them in gender-based terms. And in some way, if your only uh, goal is to get, as Straka got in the court ordered, a, a buyout in that case, well, do you even need to frame your claim in gender-based terms? Setting aside the harassment or hostile work environment aspects of the facts and Catastrophic case. The rest of the stuff, I think any man who, you know, if she was a man invested in uh, this this accounting firm had claimed, they would be pretty strong oppression facts, yeah. right? 
And so it, since it's not necessary, why you know, introduce it if it could complicate uh, getting a, a remedy? You know, you mentioned earlier, and maybe I didn't completely respond to the, the, the question about you know, sort of the bravery here of, of Strzok to bring this claim knowing, and this is often what employment lawyers have to tell uh, employees and when they're considering bringing cases, this might make it more difficult when you go back on the market for your next opportunity. On the other hand, I can see the other perspective, which would be that assuming the facts are there, and of course I'm making, I have to make that assumption for, for what I'm about to say, it will, it will certainly put more pressure on the, on the majority shareholders, and particularly depending on the type of business they have and how sensitive they are to sort of what I'll call the public relations aspect of this kind of litigation, particularly in this day and age when you know every lawsuit, at least in New York, is public information. You can just go onto the court's website and read the complaints and read the answers and read the motions and read everything. It's all accessible. And it can go public very quickly. So I would think that lawyers such as myself would, in, in certain instances, be very comfortable advising their clients. Yes, you have a story to tell about what, what went on inside the, you know, the four walls of this business and the kind of behavior that was engaged in by the you know, majority owners. And it belongs in this lawsuit and it will help you in this lawsuit. I mean, it's not necessarily a principle, you know, you're not necessarily fighting for some broader societal goal. You're simply fighting for your client. Right, and the reputational concern of the firm, depending on the type of of business it is, uh, it could be a a very useful letter, right, for your client, in which case uh, it would be worth, worth raising. And it would also serve the broader goal of raising this issue in, in a, in a public forum and, you know, influencing behavior. I would hope so. Although I don't think that oppression doctrine is as well equipped as something like Title VII where you see, you know, class actions and things like that to really uh, address the societal questions. But I do think just raising them and having that be part of the narrative uh, is important and does move absolutely uh, move the needle and even better if it helps uh, the client either get the, the remedy or have an effective position uh, in the litigation. Yeah. In your conclusion of your article, you say the following, without framing the claim in gender-based terms, the discriminatory aspect of the unfair treatment is not acknowledged and vindicated and the broader goals of workplace equality are not advanced. While oppression doctrine may be promising in some individual cases, it is not a substitute for serious consideration of amending existing statutes to combat discrimination more widely than the narrow and waning construct of who is an employee. So I see you sort of saying two different things there. The the most efficacious remedy solution would be to amend, I think you mean amend employment discrimination laws to encompass gender discrimination directed against people who are also owners of companies, but that nonetheless oppression doctrine can serve a purpose. I don't know what the best words to call it are. Is it, is it sort of, it's almost like consciousness raising that can have an influence? Uh, do, do I read that correctly or no? Yeah, I think that's right. Right. On the one hand, the, that's the hope here is that maybe some more enterprising 
employment lawyers who have women come into their offices with these stories will say, oh, well, I know that I might have trouble under the employment law, but maybe uh, we have an avenue under this corporate doctrine. So there is hope in that, but it's not a fix for the larger problem with the employment law, right? And that's that the uh, even the idea of an employee is a waning construct. <laughs> um, this is both because we see examples of owners that also have employment uh, with, with the company, but also on the other end, the whole number of people in our economy who are independent contractors, or at least other companies that hire them claim they are. To the extent that this distinction, whether someone is or is not an employee, but actually you are or you aren't, there's no in-between, even though the way we get there and figure that out is this six-factor multi-consideration test is maybe really, at the end of the day, uh, what what needs to change. And for example, in, in Germany, they have a third category, someone who isn't an employee, uh, but we're going to give them a classification that is something more than an independent contractor so that they have access to at least some number of the benefits or the rights that come with uh, being an employee. And look, the recent pandemic has really this question, right? We were giving unemployment benefits to folks who wouldn't have, before the pandemic, been eligible because they weren't uh, employees. Uh, and that's just recognizing that such a broad part of our economy, it just doesn't fall into the category of employee uh, as it was understood in the 1960s, for example. And uh, and so, yeah, ultimately the conclusion is, well, there's this gap and here's a corporate doctrine that may uh, patch in some of the holes and may give some promise in terms of bringing these stories to light and getting women remedies. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not enough of a fix to forget the ways in which we could re-conceptualize uh, who is an employee. Meredith, I want to thank you for spending the time talking with us about what is certain to be a, a developing area of the law. I, I don't doubt it for a second. I expect to hear and see more from you on this subject as the courts you know, will continue, I believe, to grapple you know, with this issue. So again, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Thank you, Peter, for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can download a copy of Professor Miller's article at our SSRN authors page. You'll also find a link on my blog. As always, for the latest developments in business divorce law, check out the New York Business Divorce blog, where you'll find new articles each week. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler.